We are in number 348 of this book, which is a very interesting one. What is superstition? It may sometimes be actually simply a deeper-than-usual sensitivity to interrelationships or influences of which most people are unaware. Sensitivity to solar radiation, for example, may seem superstitious to people if they know nothing about it. In modern times, science has discovered countless subtle influences that, even a few decades ago, would have struck people as imaginary. I don't intend to enlarge on this point here, so I'll leave it to my readers to decide for themselves whether the following notions, most of which the Master accepted from traditional Indian lore, should be classed as superstitions or as endorsed by his own intuitive awareness. There follow a few that he not only held personally, but actually asked others to follow. They may strike some people as being contrary to common sense. I myself am in no position to judge, but I don't think they should be dismissed as quaint idiosyncrasies, for if that is all they are, I never saw Master display any others. He told the disciples around him, for example, when they greeted him the first thing in the morning, not to close one eye in a squint as they came in, if one eye was closed, he told them to shut the other eye also. If one eye was closed, he told them to shut the other eye also. This superstition is widely held in India, where people say that if you greet someone in the morning with one eye closed, the two of you may quarrel that day. Now that really sounds superstitious. Did your family follow that, Saigonis? Did you know of it? Mm-hmm. I just wonder how many of these you'd know. When accepting gifts from people, the Master always received them with his right hand. He insisted that we do the same also. I often saw him insist on a gift being also given with the right hand, not with the left one. This is another universal practice in India where it is held that the left hand is impure. I think, however, that the Master may have meant also that the magnetism of the left hand is passive or negative and less adapted, therefore, to wholehearted giving or receiving. You know, that this is such an all-pervasive practice at Ananda that, uh, that Swami instituted with us is that whenever I see anybody handing anything of importance with the left hand, I cringe. And, and when I see people reaching out with their left hand to accept something, I also have the same reaction, give it to... You know, it's just, it's just really um, the squinting, the one eye open thing I never lived with, but I certainly grew up with this. Yeah, when I was, you know, the first few years in the U.S., I still do, you know, when you drive in the car uh-huh. and you turn your window down if you're exchanging something like paying toll fee or something. Yeah. It's just absolutely, I, I cannot imagine giving somebody something with their left hand yeah. and I have to do this. Yeah, reach around. <laughs> <through the window. laughs> That's true, you do pay the toll person. Yeah, yeah. I, I still don't do that because it's, you never... It's just so against habit to yeah. give money or give anything to somebody with the, with the left hand, so I always have to go like this when I pay toll. <laughs> you know, this comment always gets all the left-handed people into some conver- conversation. And I, I never heard Swamiji... Uh, uh, what's the word? I never heard him, you know, balance that point out. 
Um, his housekeeper, Leela, was left-handed. Vidura, who's been a very prominent leader of Ananda, is left-handed. Those are two people that I know who are around Swami a lot, who are left-handed. And, you know, every, their natural inclination in all circumstances would be to reach out with the left hand for other reasons. But, of course, even with them, with Kriya, you always accept the rose petals with your right hand. The, I, it's, it's funny, I can't tell. I've been doing this so long, it's, it's like you. It feels wrong to use your left hand for anything like this. But I, I no longer know whether it's just because I feel, I actually feel it, or whether because Swami always trained us to do it, so now it feels contrary to the way things should be. Funny. And I don't have an answer for the left hand question. We, were, we had a discussion about it once, about the left hand path, and, and someone was saying how left-handed people took offense at that. Well, it would be easy to understand why they would, you know? And whatever that is in the brain that makes you left-handed, I, I've never heard it analyzed from a yogic point of view. But it is interesting how it... No, you, that you receive with the right, too. Master said... Oh... But you're talking, he's talking about the left hand is receptive. And so when you're giving, but when you're receiving, he said you should also receive with the right hand. So, it, yeah. Anything auspicious has to always be done with the right hand. Our resident expert on Indian culture has this, and he is the resident expert. I'm sorry, I don't understand the traditional blessing of the dinner. But the, it's an entirely different situation. You're making a link of energy around the room, trying to pass your energy around the room. Yeah, it's not the same as, as handing your guru a, a fruit or receiving his blessing from him. Yeah. I mean, otherwise you would just have to only ever have one hand, which is highly inconvenient. And you couldn't hold hands around a circle. But see, once you start dealing with things like this, that are, that are well, everything has a rational basis eventually, if you know what it is, that are not explained that way. Oh, well, so here we have it. When he saw a broom left out, Master always insisted that it be put away. There was one sitting out here this afternoon. Th that, to me too, Swami was always about the brooms. Whenever I see a broom sitting out now, I, I again, it's, it's an interesting question I haven't asked myself. Is it only because I was trained that way or because I'm actually sensitive? I feel very uncomfortable when a broom is left out anywhere. And I just see it. Because I, I, he says, I'll go on about the broom. The monks who ate some of the monks who ate, and some of them also lived in the basement at Mount Washington, tended to be lax in this regard until he said to them, finally, brooms have a negative astral vibration. Yeah, whoa, that's really a big statement. And yeah, brooms have a negative astral vibration, and they should just not be left out. So, I mean, I walk and I'm in the temple here, and I see somebody's just cleaning, and they've set a broom up against the Hence here, it, it makes me very uncomfortable because I'm, I'm just so trained to think it's a bad thing. How can you leave a broom on the dais, you know? <clears throat> Did he say this only, as Sister Mira suggested to me later, to induce us all to be neater? Because <laughs> the monks tended to be 
careless and messy. And so did Master exaggerate the statement in order to get their attention? And he says, Mira suggested that Master was exaggerating. Swami says, I simply don't know. So, in any case, once when walking in the garden, he went around one side of a small tree. Several of the monks, trying to keep up with him, began going around the tree by the other side. The master called back to them and said, come by the way I took. <laughs> like, why? Who knows? Um, I, they, do, they do have that suspicion that if you walk on opposite sides of an object, it'll divide you in certain ways. But, you know, it's easy. I, I see someone in the room lifting their eyebrows skeptically, but this is where Swami started. Are these mere superstitions or are these actual sensitivities on a deeper level? And you know, I do know that you disregard the master at your peril. I can speak of the peril I have incurred for disregarding things Swami said to me. The Indians, as, as just not, you know, he was serious and I didn't know it. The Indian scriptures state that it is auspicious to arrive, to arrive in a light rain, but inauspicious to leave in the rain. The master in autobiography of a yogi mentions of his uh, mentions of his aborted flight to the Himalayas, the memorable morning arrived with inauspicious rain. Swamiji tells of times when it was raining outside and Master would have them wait until the rain stopped before they departed, because it just is not uh, auspicious. I mean, you would think a Master would be beyond it all, but he wasn't. So that's why Swami tells all these stories without comment. I'm just going to present it to you, he says. Swami goes on, I several times heard Master state that Thursday afternoons are bad for initiating a long voyage. If one's conveyance was to leave in the afternoon, he suggested that one pack his bags and leave them outside the house, outside the door, so as to be able to say technically that the voyage had begun already. You're trying to outwit what? Who are you trying to outsmart? Anyway... Laurie Pratt, who's Taramata, who practiced astrology, was incredulous when I repeated this last thought to her. I then said, Master told us that this was, quote, according to the voice of God. She repeated that phrase wonderingly, even less credulously. But Thursday is ruled by Jupiter, she protested, an auspicious planet. Jupiter is also the ruler of long voyages. It can't be wrong to start a long voyage on a Thursday. She wasn't dismissing his statement, simply expressing puzzlement. I, of course, knew nothing on the subject, having never so far read anything on it. Perhaps this thought has occurred to me since then, because the sun is in its decline after noon, Jupiter's influence turns negative for long voyages because Thursday mornings are all right, but it's Thursday afternoons for long voyages that is inauspicious. So I'm just trying to find some logic behind the distinction. At any rate, the master added, according to the voice of God, not according to the word of God, which he might have done had he read it in some scripture. All of this is speculation afterwards. I have it written as voice in my notebook, which I wrote in 1951, 
and in memory I can still hear him speak that word, voice. This is according to the voice of God. Uh, You would be surprised that God would have an opinion, much less voice it, but nonetheless, there it is. (laughs) Who are we to argue with the master? (laughs) That's why Swami wrote this book, because there were just too many interesting things that he just didn't have a place for. So he can just put this in here as, you know, as clearly as he can, and then we all can just reflect on it and see what it means to us. Another superstition may be seen in this example. A.B. George, a disciple for whom the master had great love for his pure heart, was asked by the master to move to the lake shrine and take up his residence there. Come on Tuesday, the master instructed him, before 11 o'clock. Now actually, Swami writes 11 o'clock here, but when I moved to Ananda village, he sent word, because uh, I was going to arrive on a Tuesday, he said, arrive before noon. And I was driving all the way from the city of San Francisco and had to pack the car. So it wasn't, but I did. I arrived just before noon. Here he says 11. I hope that my whole life hadn't been cursed from that. But pardon me? I'm sorry, what did you? Daylight savings. It was uh, June 1st. Whatever it was. Yeah, he said arrived before noon. Well, at least that was what I recall. And I arrived just before noon. But it was the same thing. It's like he went to all the trouble to, to say, arrive before noon. I think we, he might have told us to come on Tuesday before noon. But in any case, it was a Tuesday. And it, it was important to arrive before noon. I don't know whether the Tuesday was already in place from my schedule or not. Pardon me? I'm sorry. No, Master said it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Master learned it from... I mean, Swami learned it from Master, and and Swami knew that you disregarded anything Master said at your peril. He just didn't speak casually. Of course, you can't become... You have to use your own brain. Swami's words were, I followed him unhesitatingly, but not unquestioningly. But you just don't know what's, what's at play. And Master wasn't, as Swami says, you may dismiss these as idiosyncrasies, but I never saw Master manifest any others. So it wasn't like Master had a whole series of peculiar rituals that he had to follow. He was completely not that way. But he, was, he made a point of all of these things, so it was not characteristic of him to be uh, creating uh, weird ri- rituals around him. There you have it. I think that anything, my feeling is, my feeling is kind of simple. God, God knows we need all the help we can get. <laughs> that was number 348. Yeah. As I said, some of these have been so integrated into my life at Ananda that, like the broom and the right hand, that to me they're just facts. And I can no longer discern anything. But I've never resisted them either. You know, I'm just... I'm thinking about my own processes, which I know are shared by others. You know, one one has intuitive responses to thing with things, whether you whether you're aware of it or not. You know, you try to start taking. I certainly find you try to start taking a certain supplement, and then you can just never remember to take it, or or things like that. That things, some of it is because you're not doing what's good for you, but sometimes a, a certain kind of intuition will 
move you in directions even when your rational mind isn't engaged. But the right hand and the broom are the two that are so strong in me that I actually have a visceral reaction to both of them. Habit or intuition, I couldn't possibly say because they're too intertwined by this point. Okay. Number three, four, nine. It is not easy to be spiritual, the Master once said, but it is very easy if you will only follow a few rules. That's quite a statement. It's not easy to be spiritual, but it isn't. It is easy if you just follow a few rules, but those rules are not simple. <laughs> yeah, the rules are not easy. That's what I actually mean. The rules, and so this, this is quote from Master. Begin by simplifying your life, which is a very interesting word. I, I, at a certain point, I realized that simple living was having what you need, but only what you need. That, that came to me because Swamiji, from the very beginning, his life was, he, he, he had more, did more, and, you know, just lived in, at a more complex and more, um, I don't want, the word I don't want is materialistic, but he had more, he had more than, any, than many of the rest of us did. But as I gradually got to know him and observed him, I just realized he had, he still only had what he needed. He didn't acquire just for the sake of acquiring. He didn't live in clutter. He didn't have many superfluous things. He didn't spend money for the sake of spending money. But he, he, he didn't hesitate to have in his life what he needed in his life. He bought a computer very early. He bought several different complex computerized music writing systems. He traveled. You know, he... He, he made a nice home, he furnished his home well, he decorated it, not fancy, but well, because he had to host and be and set a certain example. And for those of us who are very anti-materialistic and um, inclined toward the primitive, which was sort of more my inclination, um, it, some people didn't, you know, uh, criticized him because they couldn't understand. But as I got to, to know him, for the magnitude of his mind and his mission, that was simple for him. And I remember at a certain point when people were encouraging him to buy something else for Crystal Hermitage or something like that. He just said, no, it's complete, which, was, which always stayed in my mind. He, he didn't have any interest in redecorating it or changing the decor or adding one more thing. And, and I realized that there had been, had been a certain movement of energy to get it to, to the point where he felt it was complete. And then after that, it, it was done. There was no, nothing more to do, to do. It was a very purposeful um, action on his part, not one that was compelled by inner restlessness. Because a lot of times what people do on the material plane is compelled by inner restlessness rather than actually simple. So it, it can't always be judged from the outside. It's just... And I remember one another time when I was at his... At, at the hermitage, it, when maybe it was or wasn't already the hermitage, but meaning before it was expanded. It was about 10 o'clock at night, and there were, uh, there were at least 10 people in the house besides Swami, because I remember counting. And every one of them was engaged in some purposeful, involved task that he, I realize in retrospect, had created to involve them. <laughs> so he was also often 
creating opportunities for people to serve. He was creating opportunities for people to serve him, or he was creating the opportunities that they needed in order to do something that was necessary for him, which required much more complexity than if, than if he wasn't always thinking about the welfare of all these other people. I know as a, a very interesting example was, I think, the, is the phrase an early adapter, an early adopter, adopter or adapter? Adopter? Yeah, I thought it was adopter because you buy it, you know. You don't just adjust to it, but you buy it, right? So Swami was an early adopter for technology that appeared to serve him. He, he got a computer of, to write way early, just very early in the system. Immediately he saw what it could do for him. And then at a certain point, a music writing computer system came out. And uh, it was very complex. And it was so complex that, that he had to actually hire a man who was a major techie, a brilliant major techie, um, who, who was so good, he was doing things with early computers at, at a design level that people even now can't figure out how he did it. So Swami had him working on this thing, and for like two years this man's job was to make this thing work. I believe it was for two years, now I might be exaggerating, but it wasn't just an evening. It was a job that went on for some period of time. That number now I doubt the number, but that's what I seem to recall. And in the end, it was just so complicated that Swami, it, it did not facilitate Swami's music writing, which was the whole point, because the music came to him effortlessly, but writing it down was an obstacle. And so the computer was supposed to make that easier. And either they, they just gave up, or something simpler and easier to use came out. But it was very expensive and was a big flop. And a number of people criticized Swami for spending money in such a what they thought was frivolous way when everybody was struggling so much financially, which is all very interesting in itself. And at one point in some satsang, that this was going on. The man, and I'm leaving his name off because he's no longer with us, but the man raised his hand and he said, my whole life was falling apart, he said. And when Swami Kriyananda asked me to work on that, machine, he said, for that period of time, he said, it absolutely saved my life. You know, so the project was a flop, but was the project a flop? You just, and, and with Swamiji, and I know this is true, he doesn't calculate. He doesn't sit and think, oh, I could buy this, and then it would help so-and-so, nothing like that. He, he just moves according to how it seems to him. And, and he does it so, um, it's so integrated into his way of being that he would see the machine and know he was supposed to buy it. He would, you know, need someone to help. and would, it, it wouldn't be like, I'll do this and then that'll happen and then this will happen. I know in one context when he ran a whole scenario that became very surprisingly, the results were somewhat surprising. I said, did you know that this was going to happen? And he said, I didn't, but I'm not surprised. He said, because I am accustomed to just following the flow of intuition and trusting that wherever it goes is where it's supposed to go. You know, there's just so many subtleties uh, inside. And so, what did often did not appear simple to others was really simple for him, because he was just he was following this one line of, of destiny, you might say, even his own or the destiny of Ananda. But he was operating at such a high and complex level of energy 
that naturally it manifested differently for him than it did for some of us. What what was uh, simple for me looked very different than what was simple for him. So that's what you ask yourself: is this is this really is this really what I need? And if a trip to Hawaii is what you need, it's what you need, and it's not not simple. It's not a violation of simple living to take it. So you have to ask yourself those questions. Anyway, it's lots of fun when you start thinking like that. Because sometimes being too frugal is not really simple either because you're always optimizing and never able to just flow and always concerned. So it isn't just a question of being frugal. It's being appropriate is actually the right word for it. So anyway, he said, Master's Rules, begin by simplifying your life. Then... Remain somewhat apart from others. Just it's, he, he says it so simply. Remain somewhat apart from others. If you want to find God, don't mix too much socially. You know, this is it's in the in the context of Ananda community. It's it's just these are very interesting comments, because we are a community. We do live closely with each other. Swami encourages our friendships. He says friendship is one of the essential qualities, and even examples that Ananda is here to set for the world. Of course, mixing with other ashramites is quite different than mixing in worldly company. So it's it has to be adapted with common sense. But I'll, I'll speak about this in just a moment. I myself, Master speaking, I myself mix with others very little. In that phrase, mix with others, I'm not quite sure what it means. When I am alone... I remain centered in the self. Seclusion, I often say to people, is the price of greatness. You know, there's many factors here. What he's also talking about, remain somewhat apart from others. He's emphasizing it as physical. I mean, I'm just stopping for a second. When we started the San Francisco Ananda House, which was about 1979, and Swami, it was, the, it was the Sacramento Center had started, and then Swami put a lot of energy that summer into starting the San Francisco house, which we had for 10 years there. And finally, it was a rented house, and it was taken back by the owners. And by that time, Palo Alto it was pretty underway, so San Francisco was let go of, and the energy was directed here. Um, but the house was very expensive to rent, and in order to be able to afford it, we had to put a lot of people in it. And Swami put people in with roommates. and just insisted we had to put two people into a room. And he insisted because he knew if he didn't, no one would do it. But I remember that there was a lot of, like, it, it felt contrary. But, you know, people adapted to it and actually lived quite happily that way. And almost everyone, I don't, except for a few very small, very small rooms in the basement, everybody lived Fortunately, the rooms were spacious, but everybody shared a room. And, when, and any objection that was made to that, Swami just dismissed as just not relevant and not, not that important. So I'm drawing from that. And, you know, mixing with people has a particular sound to it, which is, is quite different than loving them or being their friends. It somehow has, and I, I don't want to read too much into details, but remaining somewhat apart from others is not just whether you're in their company, it's whether or not your well-being depends on those relationships and whether you're seeking from other people something that will never be found with other people. And I think that that's also what he's referring to. 
there's an extraordinarily solitary quality about that is that is necessary for our relationship with God and it's it's not merely that you have to be alone in seclusion and have that centeredness it's that one has to break this extraordinary deep expectation that we'll find fulfillment outside ourselves and and that's I think what he's really addressing in all of this which is that I feel lonely I'll go be with people I feel unfulfilled I'll just invite someone over I feel restless, I'll just go hang out with my friends. You know, it's, it's not just the being, because Swamiji often had people with him. He, he spent time alone, he spent hours and hours and hours of his life, you know, and many, many days by himself working. But he was also, I don't know if you want to call him social or what you would call him, but he, he, he gave his energy very freely to many people. So it, he was not he was not hermit-like in his personality, but he was always, I guess the word I would use is complete in himself, and you, you didn't feel from him a longing for human company. And it's that longing that I think Master's really trying to address. And at least he's saying these are a few simple rules that you have to... Um, you have to become aware of what's motivating you and you have to exercise, you know, uh, you have to make conscious choices. And, and it's, it's, it's always a push-pull between the, the human inclination and the divine pull. They really play against each other. Being spiritual, it is not easy to be spiritual, he said. And, and you know, implied in that is it's not... To live only for God is not that easy. But it is, not, it is very easy if you will follow a few rules. Simplify your life. Remain somewhat apart from others. Don't mix too much socially. And when you're alone, remain centered in the self. Seclusion is the price of greatness. I can't really answer it more than that. These are issues I've been contemplating a great deal myself. Because, you know, you just reach a point on the spiritual path where you realize how serious this is. <laughs> and if, if, for a lot of us, I'll, I'll use myself, but a lot of us, let me think how to say it. There, there, there was a certain good karma momentum from the past that carries you for a long time. You're, you know, one is naturally generous, one is naturally happy, one is naturally enthusiastic, one is naturally um, simple in one's taste, you know, just lots of things. So it, it's, it's fun being on the path. And then there comes a point at which um, a, whole nother sta- a, whole, a whole next stage comes in and all that natural momentum is insufficient. My, my joke version of it is the drop kick the, the soccer ball drop kick uh, image of the spiritual life, which is when we're, we're born, God, God gives us a drop kick, you know, where you drop the ball and then, and then the bo- ball sails way a long distance, then it hits the ground and it bounces, then it rolls. And, you know, there's just this sort of like, you just come into this life and you have all this momentum because there's just this force. But there's a certain point at which that momentum, you know, the ball bounces, then it rolls then it stops. <laughs> and, and then there's a point. 
I have experienced, and I've seen others experience, where it's not automatic. And it, and for some of us, it was automatic for a long time. And then it's not automatic. It, it came to me a lot after we finished 12 years of litigation, especially after the 10 years of litigation, which was grim. And uh, when, before that started, before 1990, um, it, it was just effortless innocence. It was the freedom of being a child. It wasn't childlike, it was childish, even though, you know, by 1990 I was a full-grown adult with a lot of my own responsibilities. But when we went through those years of litigation, they were, there was so much, well, the word, I, the word that I want to use is evil. I, I, I experienced evil personified, and I saw that people will do really awful things, just, you know, really ugly, evil things. It, 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 ju- it happens. And then when it was all over and our lives weren't threatened anymore and we were extricated from people who were trying to take away everything we loved, I didn't automatically become childlike and cheerful again. And I just sort of waited. I waited about a year for the natural, innocent buoyancy to come back. And then it crossed my mind. I must have been 50 by then. Then it crossed my mind that now I had to decide. And I really remember waking up one morning and saying happiness is a choice, whereas before happiness was a habit. And I realized it's a choice. This is, because I I was in my early 50s or maybe so, I realized this is when people start getting old. And and then I, I began deliberately to be cheerful, to be outgoing, to be enthusiastic, whereas before I'd never had to make the decision. But I've had to make that decision a lot of times since then, to just deliberately put out positive energy. Now, many people are not born. I was born with very, very, very good karma. I know that I was. Many people have to make that deliberate choice from the time they're conscious enough to have to make it. So I don't know whether it's good karma or bad karma to to be so old before you have to make it. I don't know. But I know there's a certain point at the spiritual pa- in the spiritual path where it isn't as much fun. And then you have to decide that you're going to make it fun. It's a joy is a choice. And, then, and you put your willpower behind it. So, you know, this simple thing like remain somewhat apart from others. Seclusion is the price of greatness. Don't mix too much with other people. It's just a part of you says, but, but, like that. And, and you have to really, and you also have to really find, and it's extremely important, you have to really find not just what did Master say, but what of the th- many things Master said really belonged to me. Because Master said he had to teach so much because he only had to do, was it one-tenth or was it one percent? Now I don't remember of what he said. But everybody chooses a different percentage so he had to offer so many choices so that everybody could find the piece that worked for him or her and one of the real challenges of maturity on the spiritual path is to be able to say well that's not for me someday maybe that but that's not for me i'm going to do this and to be, and not to feel uh, i've seen people ruin their spiritual lives by not having i think humility is actually the right word or self-honesty enough to say, huh, I'm just not that good. I, I remember having a conversation with someone who really 
made himself quite crazy for quite a few years trying to live up to a standard that just didn't apply to him. And when he sort of said to me something like, well, you heard Swami say thus and so, you know, why didn't you do it? I said, it never occurred to me that that applied to me. (laughs) It just never crossed my mind. It was so far outside anything that I knew I could achieve that I literally just blotted it out. It was spoken. I, I was there. I heard, I heard that those instructions spoken, but it was just ludicrous. So I just dismissed them without thought. And I think that's better because if you stretch too hard, you'll just break and you'll lose it all. I know at one point Swami had to, you know, moderate me. In, in the Catholic Church where they've been doing this for a long time, they have a word, it's called overscrupulosity, where you begin to try so hard, you just, you just are so scrupulous about every little thing, that pretty soon you're nuts, you're just crazy. And you, you usually leave the path, because you define the path in such a way that it's impossible to follow. So the only choice you have is to run away. Swami saw me starting to do that. He said he, he saw me just narrowing my options so much that there was no way I could survive. There was no long, there was no long distance possibility with that. This is not a sprint. So I love the idea of reincarnation, because you know sooner or later I'll get to it. <laughs> Does that all make sense? So there you have it. I love the idea of reincarnation because sooner or later I'll get to it. And if I'm not going to get to it now, I'll get to it later. And when I get to it, it'll be the right thing for me. I don't have to worry that I'm not good enough. I just have to notice that I'm not good enough. <laughs> I mean, and I also have curly hair. I mean, like, what, what are you going to do about these things? <laughs> life is life. <laughs> All right, number 350. Master had been telling me that a basic reason he was sent to the West was to reveal the basic truths underlying the Christian and the Hindu scriptures. This was after he'd just finished writing his commentary on the Bhagavad Gita. He had already written his commentary on the New Testament. Sir, I protested, isn't your work a new religion? I mean, here Master is, he's interpreting these traditional scriptures that are, that are hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of years old, I mean, it is actually, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Master reincarnates for Dwapara Yuga rising. It's a new dispensation. And he looks back and brings up these old scriptures and writes new commentaries. Isn't your work a new religion? Surely it isn't only to interpret past scriptures. It is a new expression, Master replied. Thus he succeeded in both confirming my statement and correcting it which is a nice observation on Swami's part too. You know, it's a new expression, but truth is eternal. But it's, it has also been interesting to me to think, just to, I mean, not perhaps not as profoundly as Swami is trying to do here, but why does Krishna still matter? Why does Jesus still matter? You know, you, know, you would think, I mean, part of the, maybe it's just the American way of thinking, the new replaces the old. You know, you throw away the old blender because you have the new Vitamix. You know, you just don't keep the old model around. But Master is, has a new dispensation, but it's based on Jesus and Krishna. So I just sort of feel like there's some force happening. 
Swamiji raised the very interesting thought uh, because Master uh, said, in, and I think this is in an earlier uh, entry in this book, that quite a few well-known spiritual figures throughout uh, the history of spiritual teaching, quite a few of them were incarnations of various of our gurus. You know, even Krishna himself, he said, was Babaji, Yogananda, himself was Arjuna, um, Lahiri Mahashaya was Kabir, am I correct in that? Was Lahiri also Rajasi Janakananda? And, you know, it goes on and on. So Swami raised the question without being able to say it one way or another. He said, perhaps this particular line of masters is in charge of this planet. Maybe every planet has its own assigned group of uh, uh, gurus and that the, the masters have been in charge of this planet for a really long time. Because, you know, Krishna and Christ were physical incarnations on this planet. And when you consider how many planets there are, it, it, just, it was just an interesting thought that he, he never could do more than say, it's fascinating to contemplate, isn't it? But the fact that Jesus and, Yoga and Krishna were important to what Master's doing. I, I, I can't answer it more. It's just fascinating to contemplate. The Bhagavad Gita and the Bible, too, certainly remain um, vividly alive, you know. And, and my recent experiences this year, having gone to Israel twice in the course of three months, four months, um, and it being my third trip, my second and third trip there, and my coming to appreciate what extraordinary blessings. I mean, in the West, we call it the Holy Land, and you know, no other place in Western culture is called the Holy Land. And you say the Holy Land, and you know you mean the place where Jesus walked. Of course, for many people, India is also a Holy Land, but we say the Holy Land in the West. But because of the politics of that situation and the volatile nature of it, some part of me has always just thought that some massive cleansing will end up happening there and it will turn into desert or something like that. You know, with the possibility of nuclear explosion, landscape can be obliterated and transformed. And part of me, and not, not seriously, but just part of me couldn't imagine that that wouldn't happen. You know, many people feel that if in fact the world really does go into some worldwide conflagration that the Mideast is a natural place for it to start, an obvious place for it to start. These are not prophecies, I'm just chatting, everybody's heard these same things. But after being there, being in the Holy Sepulchre where Jesus was resurrected, the place where he was crucified, the Sea of Galilee where he reappeared after his death to his disciples, I think, how could these places ever be lost? You know, how could so much spiritual power, why would God ever make that inaccessible or unrecognizable? So you hear this here also, it just raises interesting questions. If Jesus is so important in the continuous flow of this new Dwapara expression, then it, it makes my whole thought about the future of that physical place on earth, it just it becomes curious. You know, no one will know. I mean, only the people who live through whatever happens will know. Or from the astral world, we'll, 
will peer down. It is, there are two examples when whichever, you know, America having dropped two nuclear bombs on Japan at the end of World War II to hasten the end of that, that there was huge areas of devastation, but in the middle of devastated areas, I believe, I don't know if it was one church and one monastery, but two Catholic holy places, everything around them was destroyed and they weren't. I mean, how do you account for that? You just don't know what to say, except don't leave your brooms out and accept things with your right hand. You don't know what is auspicious, what is superstition, and what is divine. You know, you, you can't call that luck. It's just too far outside of it. it, it, it for me, it makes, it makes life extremely interesting. And it, it makes me very open-minded. Not weak-minded, but open-minded that we just, so much is happening that we don't know about. It just behooves us to, you know, not become naive, but also to not be too quick to say, yes, no, impossible. Who knows? Maybe so. Perhaps it's true. <laughs> yes. Trin Lahiri and uh, Rajasi, um, I wasn't aware that... that well, Master, Master, now. I'm correct in that, that Lahiri was Rajasi Janakananda. Isn't that true? I'm just, yes, and that's what, Yes, Rajasi Janakananda was St. Lynn. Yes, King Janaka. That's how I garbled it up. Yes, I totally garbled it up. Thank you. Yeah, people will just be so confused. Yes, um, Lahiri was King Janaka, who was a sage and a king. Master gave the name Rajasi Janakananda to James J. Lynn, his American disciple. But Master said that, that the fact that Babaji manifested a golden palace in order to initiate Lahiri, I mean, it is explained in the autobiography as some lingering desire or something that was being fulfilled, which is a little hard to comprehend. But the other way, the way, other way Swami explained that was that that was Lahiri's natural environment. <laughs> and it was just being, it was almost like I mean, the way I think about it, it was almost like a sentimental gesture on the part of Master to recreate for him the world that he had lived in before. And so it, it fulfilled, if you want to use that word, which is the word Master uses, you know, just this sort of lingering impression that this was a, a natural atmosphere for him. It's hard to say. A lot of times we have, and I presume the Masters do too, you just have these lingering realities that are beautiful to re-experience whether or not you, that rises to the level of a desire or is just a feeling about things that, that is settled by experience. Who knows? Who can say? All right. Any other comments or questions? Number 351. There are so many things here in America, Master said, that I wanted for my own impoverished country. In time, however, I found that the people here in America are not so happy on average as the peasants in India, many of whom cannot afford more than one meal a day. That's really a striking commentary, isn't it? Despite the material prosperity here, people haven't the same inner happiness. Americans are satiated with a plethora of sense pleasures. Happiness eludes them for the simple reason that they seek it everywhere except in themselves. 
It's really... I, I remember being in India for the first time, and it wasn't so much the sight of poverty that astonished me. For some reason, I just was able to go through that. I, maybe I just shut it out. But one of, the vis- one of the images that stuck with me more strongly was going through some local market and seeing an old woman uh, sitting on the side, and she was, she was selling. She was selling garlic, and she was selling it by the clove, one clove at a time. And people would come, and they would buy one clove of garlic because that they had the day's wages, and they needed the clove of garlic. Also, they were the habit of shopping every day was also there. But also, she was so small in her capacities that she would sell one clove at a time. And that, I mean, that was how the monetary exchange... That, to me, was one of the most vivid um, images of the difference between an impoverished and a wealthy country. Who would, who would ever do that in this country? You just never would do it. You just buy the whole head, even if you only want one clove, because it just isn't the way we operate. But I remember also when Mother Teresa of Calcutta was trying to set up a house, and maybe she did set up a house in New York, I think. She tried to set one up in San Francisco, but was so thwarted by the government that she just shook the dust of San Francisco off her feet and went away. Because they, they were had been given some house and they were trying to set it up to be one of their homes and um, the city demanded they put in an elevator. You know, how will people get up and down the stairs? And Mother Teresa said, we'll carry them. And they wanted to strip out all the luxuries. I think they wanted to take out the hot water. And in the end, the city had too many rules and just wouldn't let them. I mean, imagine. So missionaries of charity never got established in San Francisco. But she did establish, I know in New York, because I remember seeing it in a, a documentary, and, and Mother Teresa also said, she said, you think that India is poor. He said, I've never seen such impoverishment of spirit as I see in your country. He said, you people are infinitely poorer than India. And it was really, I mean, she, was, she didn't mince words. And of course, that's just exactly what Master is saying here. It's very complicated. Let's take a brief break, and then we'll come back and work on that one a little more. We were just talking about Master making the contrast between spiritual poverty and material poverty. It's, it's fascinating in America because, you know, we're, energy, we're wealthy because we have a country of enormous national, natural resources, but also we make the most of it. You know, Americans are very industrious and have a very can-do spirit. So it's, it's very complicated. But the purity of um, the American spirit, at least in more recent years, seems to have been somewhat corrupted, and that's what we're dealing with now. We just have to work with it. Every, 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 every culture, every country, every reality is part of duality, and we just have to play our way through it. We're not Americans in our souls. We're just Americans because we found that this was the best place to incarnate, and Master came here. But it's, it's all very complicated. Master said after the great cataclysmic events, whenever they come, America will have half as much wealth and will be much more happy, and twice as happy, half as much wealth and twice as happy. So perhaps that spirit will come back. We'll see. I, always, I do feel when it becomes impossible to pursue material gain 
as avidly as we're pursuing it now, everybody's going to look around and say, we were out of our minds. You know, when it's taken away from us and we're forced to a simpler way of life. I don't mean in a, in a cataclysmic, painful way, but when everything is over and we can think differently again. But I, you know, the we, who is we? Because there'll be other souls incarnating and lots of us exiting, so you just don't know. India and the United States and America would hold hands yeah. and lead the world. Well, India has the spiritual, the torch of spirituality, and America has the torch of material efficiency. And as they said, in Kali Yuga, the, it was not possible to hold both realities. That's how Master put it. It was not possible to hold both realities at the same time. So India specialized in the inner world and the West specialized in the outer world. But in Dwapara Yuga, they can be integrated again. And spirituality became a matter of closed monasteries, caves. But now it can be reintegrated, a new renunciate order for a new age. You know, it's just a whole different way of approaching it. But uh, I was speaking to some people this morning about um, the fact that I was remembering Swami's comment about Michael Jackson when he first heard his music because the teenagers in our community, this was when Michael was at the height before he was disgraced or threatened with disgrace. You know, it's all so crazy. But anyway, he was at the height. Teenagers in our community couldn't believe that Swami would never heard his music. <laughs> so they gave him a recording and Swami listened to it. And Swami was honest enough to say that it was... Um, he said he's a, his words were, he's a consummate artist, he knows exactly what he wants to say, and he says it perfectly. Which, it was interesting that Swami was able to tune in. And he's so popular because he's completely in tune with the age. You know, his vibration is the vibration of the world at this time. Swami said, and, and seeing that tells me, uh, Swami speaking of himself, how completely out of tune I am with this age. <laughs> And in another context, Swami said, I'm the kind of writer who becomes famous after I'm dead because I'm just not in tune with this age. And I was having a conversation with a, cre with a creative artist friend who was lamenting her, her lack of, of external success. And I, I brought all this up. You know, to be popular, you have to give people what they want. You know, what they're in tune for, what, what they want. And when you look at what the mass of people in our country want, you have to ask yourself, why would I even want to be in tune with that? And what would it say about me if I was in tune with that? I mean, within the spiritual context, or even within the artistic world, you just have to speak to your own and call your own to you. And maybe you're solitary. Maybe your music just gets buried and it's a hundred years before... Bach is discovered, or Van Gogh is appreciated. It's, it's, it's like we see these great souls who were never recognized because they were not in tune with the age in which they lived. Swami is so far ahead. I mean, he's generations ahead of this world. But if, if it's true, you attract your own, and then if it's meant to be, over time the world may meet you. So, um, oh, let's see, what was I trying to say? 
You know, so America has a certain vibration at this time, and it's not a happiness-making vibration. It's exactly an an- it's antithetical to happiness, what our country as a whole. So, I mean, I, I may have already said this, but I just heard this random little piece of something Swami said, and he was talking about the the problem, the the only econo- the cause of all economic difficulties in the world is greed, he said. And he said, and I'm not talking about Wall Street or billionaires, he said. They have merely succeeded in doing what everyone else is trying to do. He said, they're not the cause of it. They're just the successful examples of it. It's the, it's the overall consciousness. And part of the, and among other reasons why people begin to vilify them is because they want what they have and they feel they're being thwarted and therefore it's somebody's fault. I'm not talking politics. I'm not talking economics here. It's, it's, Swami, Swami once said in a context, he, he was writing, he was actually writing his book, The Revelations of Christ. And he says some very sweeping things there about institutional religions and ministries and all sorts of things. And uh, one man was quite offended by a lot that Swami wrote and said, you know, you, you're, you generalize too much. Your generalizations are not valid. And Swami actually wrote, so, wrote an explanation that was very interesting. He said, I'm not generalizing. He said, and of course I know there's an exception. He said, but I'm describing the essential, the essential nature of the subject that I'm discussing. And it sounds like a generalization, but it's not. It's the essential inner reality that's really moving it. So he, he would, and that was very helpful to me. I only read that in the last couple of years. Because when I was much younger and I would hear Swami make what I thought were sweeping generalizations, I often, I often cringed. I mean, I was a critical, judgmental person. Why I would cringe when he would say things, but I still did. It sounded so uh, sweeping. It was a sweeping generalization. It, and I only, well, what actually happened is I gradually realized he was right. You know, that my resistance to many of the things he said was simply because I had no life experience. And I just wanted something else to be true. You know, comments about people's overall unhappiness or unfulfillment or, you know, generalizations about aging or, you know, just lots of different things, that sort of thing. But what was really happening was, no, no, it can't be so, and therefore it isn't kind of attitude. And then I began to know more people and have more experience, and it was all true. But it was even more than that. He was describing the essential reality of it, which is an important distinction. So when Master also makes a, an overall statement, he's talking about the essential reality of America is um, seek for happiness everywhere but in themselves. And this is what Master was also talking about when he says, don't mix too much with others, don't socialize too much with others, don't seek your happiness outside of yourself. And it gets tricky when you're talking about people you love and so on like that. But still, there's this essential eagerness that distracts us, that, that makes us not centered, which is why he also said, when I am alone, I remain centered in the self. Because it's remaining centered in the self that he's really trying to get us to say. Just being in the company of someone is not moving out of yourself. It's just if you hold your own reality, all these things are subtle. And that's why we spend our whole life doing this and never get bored. <laughs>
<laughs> okay, number 352. It is God alone who acts through you, plays all the roles, directs all the action. It is him alone you should really love through others when you love them. It is God you love through others. When you love other people, it's really God you're loving through them. People aren't aware of that great, ever-comforting presence. They focus all their affection on one another. When someone whom they love dies, they think, oh, how cruel. But it was God alone all the time, playing at hide-and-seek with them. He can say it so poetically and so beautifully, can't he? But this is... Uh, you know, this loving people for the sake of God within them, and therefore your attachment is to God and not to them, is a very fine line, isn't it? A, a very fine line. I remember sitting, um, what is now Hansa Temple, which is up on the hill at Ananda Village, and, and it, there used to be a porch that came out on the front of that. When they made it into a temple, they took the porch down, but we used to come out there at noontime when we worked in that building and we would sort of sit on the edge of this balcony and meditate. And you, you had a, a whole view of the whole farm area and the, what we used to call downtown, which was the central area. And I remember sitting up there one day and watching a friend of mine. He drove up in his car and he, he pulled up over here. And his little daughter, who was about five and who was just about as cute as a little girl could be, saw him and streaked the distance, which was about, you know, would be about a block and a half if you were in the city. She ran full tilt right up to him, and when she got close enough, she just leapt into his arms, you know, and he wrapped her in a big bear hug. I mean, it was, a, it was lovely. And I also thought, how could you not become attached? How could you possibly not begin to live from that um, affection? And then, of course, what happens? I remember, and I mean, this is still a very painful memory to me. I remember when my father realized that I was, you know, that I'd gone to college and I was never coming back. Because we'd been very close, and then I just drove away. One of my friends said, uh, sending your kids to college is like getting a divorce without ever falling out of love. <laughs> because it is. But I... I never intended to come back. I mean, I always knew that once I left, I was going to leave because I knew that my, intuitively, my, my life was not with my biological family. I had, a spirit, I had a spiritual destiny. I couldn't have put it to words, but I knew it was true. But it was, it, was, it was very painful for me and, of course, very sad for him when he just realized it was over. And how could he not get attached, you know, to all that wonderful affection? So... It's very easy to, to say, but exceedingly difficult to do. But that's what Maya is. You know that wonderful story about, uh, you know, the Lord and Narada. Narada not understanding delusion, and the Lord sends Narada out to get a glass of water for him, and he meets his soulmate and falls in love and spends 12 years living with her, and it isn't until everything is lost in a giant flood that the Lord finds him, quote, sleeping in the sand and Narada wakes up from this dream. Oh, that's how it works. You just don't know. And you give your whole self to it and then it turns out to be different than you thought. 
because something always happens. And it, you know, it, you don't. It doesn't have to end in disillusionment, but the the degree to which we have allowed ourselves to define our happiness according to the form is the degree to which we are vulnerable. And lessons will have to be learned. There's a very touching story, though, from Vic, the life of Viktor Frankl, who was a, a who survived it through went through a concentration camp and survived in the Holocaust in the uh, Second World War went on to become a very well-known psychiatrist and developed a whole new uh, approach to psychology that was based on the search for meaning and wrote a wonderful book, Viktor Frankl, The Search for Meaning. It's a wonderful book. And his, his point of view, based on his extremely intense experience in concentration camps, was that if you can find meaning in your suffering, then you can survive. And sometimes that meaning was, as, as he described it for himself, the profound realization that everything can be taken away from you and, and you can be untouched. He realized, he realized, because he lost everything, his wife, his family, his um, everything, he said, uh, but he realized that his self was untouched. And he would never have understood that if he hadn't been through it. And and even, I sort of, how did he put it? It was more like the satisfaction even of being in the company of such horrific, evil people and realizing they couldn't touch him. You know, it gave him a, a power and a, 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 a comfort and a clarity and a strength that, that I, I don't know if you would say it made it worthwhile, but it, it enabled them to live through it because that was always, the, it was... A, there was a constant opportunity, that's what I'm trying to f- say, a, a, an opportunity for greatness. That horrible situation was simultaneously an extraordinary opportunity to, ride to a le- rise to a level of greatness that he didn't even know was there until he was in those camps. So he came out afterwards and developed a whole uh, psychological system for helping people, which was based on helping them understand what the pos- what the meaning of their suffering was to give it purpose, and so then he tells this story about a man who was sent to him, who had been widowed, and he had just fallen into a depression and he couldn't come out of it, and so a friend sent him to see Doctor Frankel. So Doctor Frankel starts talking to him about his wife of forty or fifty years, whatever it had been, and the man, you know, loved to talk about her and the perfection of their relationship and the joy they had in one another's company. And it all seemed both uplifted and refined and very sincere. It wasn't just sentiment. And then Dr. Frankel sort of guided the conversation around and he said something about, you know, was your wife dependent on you? Oh yes, we did everything together. I took care of everything and like this. So if you had died first, it would have been very difficult for her, wouldn't have been. And the man said, oh, my goodness, I don't know how she would have survived. And then Dr. Frankel said, isn't it wonderful you spared her that suffering? And the man was just absolutely silent. And then he stood up and shook the doctor's hand and he walked out and he never came back. You know, it's just, and that was was what he was basing it on. Now, this is what Master's saying when he says, 
You have to love God through other people. Whereas people think, oh, so-and-so has died, it's so cruel, now I'm left alone, why did God do this to me? Because we set up a situation that will never last. And we know from the start it will never last, but Maya being what it is, we think that we are the exception. And that's why the spiritual path is not for sissies. Okay. Number 353. It is not possible to attain happiness without non-attachment. So this is just a continuation. Giving up attachments doesn't mean self-deprivation. Ah, there you have it. Giving up attachments doesn't mean self-deprivation. This relates to what I was saying earlier. You have to act according to your own actual reality. So if you feel deprived, that's not non-attachment because you're still attached. You've just denied yourself. So true non-attachment is trading in a limited for an unlimited, a lesser for a higher. If you feel deprived and are always feeling deprived, that's what Swami was saying to me. You're defining the spiritual path so narrowly that you're not going to be able to follow it because you're always going to feel deprived and you'll come to, to, to hate it. You can't sustain it. So true non-attachment doesn't mean self-deprivation. When I was young, Master said, I practiced for a time deliberately watching myself as if from the outside, eating, bathing, walking, and so on. It was a bit strange at first, he said, but the practice gave me in the end a wonderful sense of freedom. So what he's talking about is not rejecting, but attuning on a higher level. And so attachments fall away when, you know, I don't, I don't have to struggle not to eat sirloin steak. You know, it's just, it's not attractive to me. But there's other things that are still attractive to me. You know, speaking too sharply, saying something I want someone to hear when they don't want to hear it. You know, being nervous about things when I shouldn't be nervous. Somehow it still works for me, so I keep doing it. But, but things that you really are not attached to and, and the way you get non-attached is you keep redirecting yourself to the higher reality. It's not so much you also discipline yourself away from the lower as much as you are able, but the more powerful way is to redirect yourself to the higher. Because then it just becomes obvious. Why would I do that when I can do this? And then it becomes the, your habit, your perspective, your consciousness, and you're much freer. All right, I think that will do us for tonight. We're just racing through the book. Okay, we started at we started at 348 and we read through 353. Thank you.